Today we're going to land the plane here. We've spent four months, if you can believe it. Time flies when you're having fun. We spent four months in this great book of 1 John. We've been studying it, learning from it, applying it. And, uh, and today as we land the plane, we land it in a very interesting passage. This is a passage that is often misunderstood, a passage where I often get questions about it because of this phrase. In 1 John 5, 16, it says, there is a sin leading to death. And now, if you're any normal person, you read that and you say, well, which one is that? <laughs> I want to know what one that one is. And so for us to understand that, we are going to have to read 1 John. But for the last 2,000 years, people have been attempting to guess what that means. What is the sin that is leading to death? And in all the speculation, all sorts of ideas have come up. Uh, some people say that this is apostasy. Apostasy is just giving up your faith or losing your salvation. Apostasy is the sin leading to death. Now, 1 John chapter 5 is the basis for the Catholic Church's distinction between venial sins and mortal sins. Venial sins are sins, according to the Catholic Church, that hurt but don't sever the relationship with God. And mortal sins are those sins that do sever the relationship with God, therefore losing your salvation and therefore ending up in eternity in hell. This is the basis for that doctrine of the Catholic Church. Some people say this sin leading to death is the unforgivable sin, whatever they mean by that, that's what they say. Some people say that this is a specific sin, like hating other Christians or blaspheming the Holy Spirit or listening to country music, which... Some of you are in trouble right now just because of that. And so in order for us to understand what this means, we have to remember why the book of 1 John was written. The, first, the book of 1 John was written to help Christians who are being introduced to this new, updated, betterized version, Christianity 2.0, that Gnosticism that was melded with Christianity, they were trying to figure out who's really a Christian around here. And we've talked about two key tenets of Gnosticism as it's been mixed with Christianity. And one of those tenets is that everything that is human or everything that is natural is evil. And the other side of that then is the other tenet of everything that is spiritual is righteous. So anything that's physical is immoral, unrighteous. Anything that is metaphysical, spiritual, is uh, holy. And so, of course, Jesus is divine. He is God. He is holy. And so, therefore, according to this Gnosticism mixed with Christianity, is there's no way that Jesus could have been human because he's divine. If we say that he's human, then he could not have been divine. And so, in order to protect Jesus, and Jesus was not a physical human. He was only of the spiritual metaphysical realm because he was divine. Now, of course, all this is unbiblical, but it sounds very religious. And so you can understand the confusion in the church about, okay, so who is really a Christian around here? How do we know which one it is? And are we even a Christian? Are we believing the right things? Now, we haven't talked about really any other tenets of Gnosticism, but today on our last day in this book, I want to introduce another tenet of um, Gnosticism with Christianity. Another doctrine of the Gnostics is 
what is known as antinomianism or antinomian. Antinomianism is the doctrine. Anti means against. You already got that part. Nomian, and that's the law. Against the law. They are against the need for, they don't see a need for the law. They don't want to obey the law. The early Gnostics were known for not following the Mosaic law. And so in addition to what we've already heard or learned about the Gnostics that were merging Christianity, they brought with them this other idea, and this idea said this, that Christ already fulfilled the law for us, and so we don't have to pay any attention to it. Since Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we don't die for our sins, Jesus has already done it, then we can do whatever we want. We don't have to pay attention to God's morality. We don't have to pay attention to his commands. You can do whatever you want because Jesus has already died on the cross for sins. Sin, that's okay. No biggie. You don't need to worry about it because Jesus has already died on the cross for sins. Now, that might sound pretty uh, uh, anti-biblical to you, but if we just take a step back for a minute... Antinomianism, this idea of we don't need to follow God's commands anymore, we don't need to follow God's morality anymore because since Jesus Christ lived the righteous life, that righteous life was imputed to us and so we don't have to worry about it anymore, that is still alive and active today. In many churches, churches this Sunday morning, they create a Christianity, and they, in, in an effort to welcome in people who are not Christians and make non-Christians feel comfortable in their church, they describe a Christianity where Christians don't need to worry about their sin at all. They, they don't talk about sin in those churches. They don't describe certain commands that God has in Scripture. They aren't interested in using the word sin or making anybody feel guilty um, because of this idea of Jesus Christ has already died for sin, so who really cares? As a matter of fact, just this last week, I was on another church's website. I often go to other churches' websites to see what they're doing or how they communicate what they're doing. I listen to other sermons from other pastors throughout the week just for personal edification. And so I was on this one website, and the very front page, you know, the top thing on the page is no judgment here. That's like, that's like their, that's their catchphrase, no judgment here. Now, I agree with that. Christians, we are not the final arbiter. We are not the judge of anybody. We don't get to determine whether a person goes to heaven or hell. We don't judge anybody for their sins. God is the judge. Christians are not the judge. We don't send anybody anywhere in eternity. We're not the judge. But that's not what this church is subtly communicating when they put on their front page, no judgments here. What they're communicating there is, you can come to our church, and we're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to make you feel guilty. After all, Jesus Christ has already lived the righteous life, and so you don't need to worry about living a godly life. You don't feel guilty for sinning when you come to our church. That's the message. And so this antinomianism, this, this, this against the law or the against the need for the law, finding no value in the law, um, not following God's commands is a modern issue. This isn't just an ancient issue from 2,000 years ago. 
For instance, this is Steve Brown. Steve Brown is or has been a pastor for 25 years. He is a professor um, in seminary, and he wrote a book entitled Scandalous Freedom. You can kind of get the hook. There's a hook in that title, talking about the Christian free. There's freedom in Christ, and there's some scandal about that freedom in Christ. And so this is some things that he says in this book. He says, the good news is that Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, and our correctness. Obnoxiously focus on your commitment to Jesus? That's, that's kind of crazy. But that's what he says, that that's obnoxious to focus on your commitment to Christ and being correct in living a godly life. And he goes on to say this, that religion has made us obsessive, almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us to a dance, and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step and in line with other soldiers. We know that a dance would be more fun, but we believe that we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we keep marching. We must go through hell. He is saying that it is hell to live a godly life that it is hell to be committed to Jesus Christ, that it is hell to live a correct life for Jesus Christ. This is just modern antinomianism. It's modern, I don't see a need for God's commands anymore because Jesus Christ has already died for our sins, so who cares what we do? We can do anything that we want to do. Sin is okay. It, it doesn't really matter. That is why John finishes out his book in, with these verses that we're going to read. That's the context for kind of where we're starting today. All right, so let's read our passage, 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. It says this, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in the Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children... Guard yourselves from idols. Okay, so the Gnostics have come in and they've kind of began to um, change Christianity to be this betterized uh, Christianity 2.0. And along with that, it's created this heresy that you don't have a need to worry about following God's commands, about following his morality, that that doesn't really matter for Christians. After all, Christ has already died for those sins. And yet John has already addressed this already. Move back in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. 
This is one of, a, one of the qualifications of being a Christian is they are not sinning regularly. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. It says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is referring to the antinomian doctrine that the Gnostics had brought in and mixed with Christianity. Verse 5 of chapter 2, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. You keep his commandments, then we know that we are in him. And then John has already said that if a Christian does happen to trip into sin, does happen to fall into sin, that we have an advocate in front of God the Father. As God the Father is the judge, we have a defense attorney in front of that perfect judge, and that is Jesus Christ. That's 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the assumption all along as we've been studying 1 John is that an active sin life is merely an external evidence that someone's not saved, that someone who is habitually not following God's morality, habitually not following God's clear commands, is just evidence of the fact that they aren't saved. After all, that is the purpose of the book, to determine who in this church is saved and who isn't. And so these antinomian Gnostics come in and they say, you don't need to worry about any of that. None of that matters. Jesus Christ has already died for all the sins, and so it doesn't matter what you do. It's all okay. Sin's okay. It doesn't really matter. And so you've realized John's style of writing by now. He'll talk about a subject, and then he'll circle around and talk about other subjects, and then he gets back around to that subject that he started with again, but the next time it's deeper than it was the time before. And he circles around then, and he talks about other subjects, and then he gets to that same topic again, this time even deeper. And so now, today... He is the deepest that he is going to be on this topic of sin. And he says this thing that there's a sin that is leading to death. And it's fear-inducing. It's scary. And that is a good thing. But first to understand this, let's start from the beginning, verse 14. In verse 14, it says this. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked of him. Man, I have to say, this is an under, underestimated and yet sure promise of God, just like all of the other promises of God. When a Christian goes to God in prayer, he will hear and answer them. Did you know that God obligates himself to listen to the prayers of people who are believers? He obligates himself to that. One commentator put it like this, which I agree with. He said this, this is nothing less than a blank check to ask God for anything. Of course, it comes with one qualifier. And what qualifier is that? It's already in yellow on the screen according to his will. But this is an underestimated promise of God. This is an often forgotten promise of God, just like all the other promises that God has made, the promises that God made all the way back to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham and then to to, uh, Moses. Uh, 
those are all great promises of God, and he keeps every single one of them. And this is a promise of God that he keeps too. But what must occur for this promise to be kept? Well, for one, the prayer must be a believer. They must be a Christian. They, they must be born of God. Like I said, God promises or, I guess, obligates himself to listen to the prayers of people who aren't believers, of people who are believers. He obligates himself to that, but he does not obligate himself to listen to the prayers of people who are not Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't listen to the prayers of people who aren't Christians. It, doesn't, it just means that he doesn't obligate himself to that. He can, and there are examples in the New Testament where God does listen to the prayers of people who aren't Christians. As a matter of fact, there are some examples in the Bible where God listens to the prayers of people who aren't Christians and answers them in the affirmative of what they prayed. But he does not obligate himself to that. He does obligate himself to listen to the prayers of someone who is a believer, who is a child of God. I mean, what father does not want to hear from his children? So that's the first thing for this to to be a, a promise that you can hold on to. The second aspect is the prayer has to be regularly confessing their sin. Do you regularly confess your sin? This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 66. He says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Well, the psalmist is just saying something that Jesus clarified in the Gospel of John when Jesus is washing Peter's feet, and Peter says, don't wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That's, a, that's Jesus saying, if I don't cleanse you of your sin, if I don't remove the sin that you get in your life as you live your daily life, there is no fellowship between you and God. And so then that's why Peter said, well, then wash all of me because I want to have fellowship between you and God. So when there is unconfessed sin in a Christian's life, there's a broken fellowship. Now, it doesn't mean that, that you've lost your salvation. It just means that you've lost the closeness. You've lost the fellowship. And so it's possible that when you're praying and you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, it's possible that your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, just because there is a, the relationship has been, has been broken because of sin. The, the, the close fellowship between God and that believer is broken because of that sin is the barrier. And that's why 1 John 1.9 exists. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is Jesus' ministry for every believer when they apologize to God for their sin. It's just an apology. God, I'm sorry, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That's sin. That hurts me, it hurts you, it hurts the people around me. I don't ever want to do that again. Please help me not to do that again. A prayer of confession. Jesus washes our feet clean of those sins, maintains our fellowship with God the Father. We are maintain, continually being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so, are you confessing your sin regularly? Or are your prayers just bouncing out the ceiling? 
You know, a lot of Christians, they don't confess their sin to God just because they feel like it's not a big deal. You know, like, eh, it's no big deal. I did that yesterday. It didn't really matter. No one knew about it. It was just in my mind. No one even heard about it. Um, it's not a big deal. That was like last year. That was like last month. That was like, you know, last decade. Not a big deal. I don't really care. But it's, it, it didn't matter. There was no fallout from it. I, I'm not, I, there's no reason to confess that sin. Okay, well, that's unconfessed sin. Now, I'm not telling you to, to, to try to think of things that you never did <laughs> and confess those. There's enough things that we do as believers, often enough, that as soon as a Christian feels guilty, that you don't wait, that you don't wait till next Sunday, you don't wait till tonight, you don't wait till tomorrow morning, you don't wait till a communion service to finally confess that sin, because all that time, you, you have a broken fellowship with God the Father. And yet, then as soon as you confess your sins, then that fellowship is maintained through Jesus Christ washing our feet of those sins as we confess them. And so, this is the, the method by which a Christian maintains their fellowship with God so that when they pray, back to this prayer thing, when they pray, you're a believer, and there's no hindrance in the fellowship between that Christian and prayer. And thirdly, that Christian must be an obedient Christian for this promise to be true. This one here, that if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have of him. Okay, for this to be true, the believer has to be an obedient Christian. As they're praying, they have to want what God wants more than their own desires for that situation. Just think of all the prayers that you pray for your children, for your work life, for your spouse, for uh, your extended relatives, for uh, the, the medical situations that you're dealing with or your family's dealing with or the financial ones, all the prayers that you pray. The, the ones for the, the, the things that are ex extended and close. Maybe your dog gets hit by a Mack truck. And then the, the Christian that prays, oh, dear Lord, please resurrect my dog from the, grave and, from the dead and uh, may he win the Alaskan Iditarod race next weekend. Well, I don't know if you could hold to this promise. You know what I'm saying? Because it's possible that that might be your desire, but that might not be God's desire. But this is the promise. As a Christian who is regularly confessing sin, has a close fellowship with the Lord, as they are praying and they desire that God's will occurs, that prayer is going to be answered in God's will. And so then now we move to the next few verses, which appear as if they are a change in topic, but they are not. Verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask like regarding prayer, he shall ask, and God will, for him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. And I do not say that he should make a request, a prayerful request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Okay. So I know it seems like this is a whole complete change in topic, but it's not. It's just the opposite. This is an exception to the rule. It's an exception to the promise 
that we have just read about. We just read about this promise of a, of a believer that's close to the Lord praying for the will of God, that his prayers are heard and they are answered, okay? Except for this situation. Except for this. This is the exception. And this is the, this is the, the verse that has a lot of confusion surrounding it, and I get a lot of questions about this one verse. Let's just go through it, a little section by section. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death. All right, let's stop right there for a minute. Let's say you're the believer, and you see another Christian who is sinning. You know of another Christian who is sinning, but they aren't dead yet. Okay? You see another person who's sinning, but they're not on their deathbed. Okay? Right? That's pretty simple. He shall ask. Like prayer. He shall talk to God about this situation. Because he's concerned about them. That believer who sees another Christian sinning, I mean, they're not dead yet, thankfully. But they're concerned about it. He shall ask. Pray. And God will for him... For that person who is sinning, give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. How is it that God would respond to this person who is sinning, this Christian who is sinning, and this prayer of a person about that, about that person sinning, their concern for them? Well, we already know that the promise is, of God is above, that a Christian who is close to him, who has no division between him and God, as they pray, God is going to answer that, the prayer as long as it's in his will. And is it God's will that a Christian would not sin? Yes, of course it is. And so God is going to make a way, he's going to answer that prayer in a way to help pull that Christian back off from the edge. God is going to answer that prayer. Now, how is God going to answer that prayer? about this Christian who is sinning. They're not dead yet. They're not on their deathbed, but they're sinning. How is God going to answer that prayer? Well, I have a five-step process in the way that the New Testament describes that God pulls people back from the edge. This is not a complete sermon on uh, discipline within Christianity, but at least this gets the point across, okay? Here is the, the five-step process that the New Testament gives for a Christian who is sinning. Step one, that Christian in and of themselves, they feel guilty, God's Holy Spirit is inside of them, and they confess their own sin to God. Okay? The confession is not to a human, it's to our high priest who is in heaven, that is Jesus Christ. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That Christian prays the prayer of apology, and then that then Jesus washes their feet clean. There is a repentance there. There's an immediate reconciliation between them and God. And boom, it's done. It's said and done. Step two through five don't even need to happen. But sometimes a Christian will not do that. They will not feel guilty for their own sin and confess it immediately to God. They will continue to wallow in it. They'll continue. And so in Galatians chapter 2, it, it describes then a Christian being concerned about that. And so another Christian who sees the Christian sinning, and that Christian who is sinning, they are not praying to God 
to reconcile that situation. Now, if that Christian prays and a prayer of confession and they are reconciled to God immediately, boom, prayer answered. God answered the prayer. <laughs> boom, reconciliation has occurred. But let's say that a Christian does not pray that prayer and they continue to sin and another Christian knows them and is concerned about that. And so then they go to the Lord in prayer. I'm concerned about this person, dear Lord, and what they're doing. I, I want them to stop. The next step is that Christian who knows that person will lovingly go and talk to that person, just personally, encouraging them not to sin, hoping that, that, that it, will, it will stop them from doing that. They, they would confess their sins to, to God and that they would come back to living a committed life for Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible that that might work, and the person says, you know, you're absolutely right, my, I, my, my head's been in the sand, and I just need to get this right. Great. Done. Don't even need to go step three, four, or five. Solved. Done. Reconciliation is that repentance has occurred, Re, uh, reconciliation has occurred, restoration has occurred. Great. But sometimes, a Christian will continue to sin. And so, in Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out the process for loving discipline among Christians. Step three, Matthew chapter 18. Here's the process. Jesus says this, if you see a brother or a sister in Christ who is sinning, that you as a Christian would pray, one, at, as it says here, he shall ask, okay, go to God in prayer, you love them, you, you want nothing but the best for them, you want them to not be hurting themselves, and so you pray to God, you ask for help, you ask for wisdom, you ask God for the right words to say, you ask that God would help solve the problem before you have to go talk to them because it's so awkward. But, but if they don't quit, that you as a Christian, you go talk with them directly. You don't come and tell the pastor. You don't tell your small group. In your Barnabas group, you, you don't make it a prayer request that you're going to go talk with them. It's just you and that other person because you love them. It's not because you want to beat them up. It's not because you want to smack them down. It's not because you're better than them. You just, you're worried about them. And it's going to hurt them even more if they continue in it. So you go and you talk with them. And if that person says, you know, you're right. I, 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 I need to stop doing that. Then Jesus says, well, you've won a brother. Well, that's great. Done deal. Done, said, sealed. Nobody needs to know about it. They've reconciled with the Lord. Restoration has occurred. Boom. Great. But it's possible that as you go and you talk with that Christian who's sinning, they may say, well, forget you. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know enough about the situation. I'm going to keep doing it. And of course, if they're your friend, it's going to grieve your heart. And so you would go and maybe find a few other people who know about that situation and those, that other person or two other people, the, the three or four of you would pray about this. You would ask God. You'd pray that God would give you a sensitive, a sensitive heart, a loving heart. But what you don't do is you don't go and you don't go gossip about the issue, tell 16 other people, creating a little posse to go and beat up that other Christian. That's not the way that it's, it's out of love. So they, that group of people that's been praying, asking God that God would intervene, probably asking God that we had to intervene even before they have to go and do it because it's so awkward. Finally, they go. And they ask this person to please stop, that it's not good, 
that it's hurting them, it's hurting their family, it's hurting their boss, or whatever situation that it is. And, and it won't go well for them. And if that person says, you know what, you're right. You, you've, the peer pressure has worked. The best kind of peer pressure that you could have is to not sin anymore. And, and so it worked. And Jesus says, you've won a brother. In this way, God has affirmatively answered the prayer of those Christians. The Christian's prayer is, please, I don't want them to sin. That is God's will, that a Christian wouldn't sin. And so when they go, that's God's method of answering their prayer. They go and attempt to pull them back. And when they agree to come back, the Lord answers that prayer. Jesus goes on to give more steps to the process of loving discipline. Jesus says, well, okay, so if you go with a group and the person still says, we'll forget you, I'm still going to do it. Well, then that's when you take it up to the leadership of the church and an elder or two would probably go with you and would beg them to please stop doing that in prayer because it's all out of love. It's not out of finger wagging. It's not because the, the, the elder has never sinned. It's not because anybody has never, it's, not, it's because we, they're going down a dark road and we want to pull them back. This is the way that God answers these prayers of, please, God, pull this person back from the edge. They're not dead yet. That's a good thing. So there's still hope that they would respond to God's pull of them back to repentance, uh, to a reconciliation with him. Of course, then, if that person says, well, forget you to the elders of the church, well, then you get to step four. In step four in 1 Corinthians 5, it gives an example of someone who was removed from the church. And the purpose of the renewal, the removal of the church is not about uh, disciplining exactly. The goal is that that person misses everything that is here. The goal is restoring them back to being a, a part of the healthy church family. And so they are removed so that they would miss their ministry. They'd miss the encouragement. They'd miss the smiles. They'd miss the donuts. They, they, they would miss this. They'd miss the unity. And so then, hopefully, at that point, they would change their mind. That's the biblical word, repent. They would go the other direction. They'd confess their sins to God, and they would apologize to whatever people they offended along the way in the process. And step five, then, is that church body, that group of Christians, then needs to forgive them and welcome back into the family. Once repentance has occurred, they are restored back into the family. And it is this way in which God answers this prayer, he shall ask. And God will, for him, give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. If they're not dead yet and they're sinning, we'll pray for them. And if you know about it, it might be a little awkward. But if you know about it, you could be God's answer to the prayer of please bring them back. As you go and talk with them, lovingly, concerned for them, not out of any sort of, I know better than you, of a, of a, I just think I'm really worried for you sort of situation. So I think we understand that, that part. But that's not the part you came here for. You came here for the next part. You came here for the sin leading to death part, I know. There's a sin leading to death. And I do not say that he should make a request for this one. Don't pray about this one. So there is another type of sin. It is a sin that is leading 
to death. That this leads to a person being on their deathbed and eventually dying from this sin. And the recommendation from John is, <laughs> you, know, you don't need to pray for that one. So what is this sin leading to death? This refers to a Christian's sin that is so serious in God's eyes, not ours, that this is a sin that is so serious in God's eyes that he takes the life of that person committing that sin. You think, I've never heard this before. That's exactly what this is. This is a Christian who is sitting to the point where God, it's like a straw that breaks a camel's back, and, and God decides that it is in this Christian's best interest that they be in heaven, not living the life like they are. Now, I want to clarify what this is not, because some scholars attempt to um, I don't know, explain God more than he explains himself here. They try to make excuses for God, try to make God look differently than he really does in this case. And some people say, well, this is just, you know, when someone dies, just they, they do something that they shouldn't do and they end up dying from that thing. That's like God's way of saying, I told you so. That's not what this is. You know, like, let's, like, let's, like for example, someone dri- is driving their motorcycle on the 91 freeway when there is no traffic, which is, I don't know, that must be like a half an hour time in humanity. But he's driving 130 miles an hour on his motorcycle down the 91 freeway. And he gets into an accident and he dies in that accident. Now that's wrong to drive 130 miles an hour on the freeway. The Bible already tells us in Romans that God placed our government there for a reason and that we are to follow our government as if we would follow God all the way up until disobeying God. And there's no scripture in here where it says, do not, do not follow the speed limit of your local area. Uh, and so we, as believers, we follow the speed limit of our local area. Anything over 65 on the 91 freeway is immoral. It's against the command of God. So this person driving 130 miles an hour on the freeway is wrong. Okay? And so what some people say, well, he dies, and when that person goes to heaven as a Christian... That God says, see, I told you so. (laughs) That's not what this is. This isn't a case where a person is sinning in a way that it puts their life in danger and so that then when they die, God says, yeah, see, I got you. Like retroactively taking credit for the death. That's not what this is. You know, you, you walk into a police station with a gun and after it doesn't work out for you and you're in heaven, this God doesn't say, see, I told you so. That's not what this is referring to. When a husband forgets his anniversary and ends up in heaven, <laughs> God isn't saying, see, I, I, I told you so. You got yourself in that same predicament. When a, when a wife questions her husband's ability to use the barbecue and she ends up in heaven, God doesn't say, I told you so. This is a Christian that is sinning to the point where God decides that it is in their best interest to go to heaven than to continually living the life that they are already, than they are living right now. And you might wonder, wow, what sin is that? And that's a good question because you'd want to avoid that sin. What sin is this? We don't know. We don't know what sin it is. As a matter of fact, 
not only does it not say what sin it is or isn't, I don't think that it is a particular sin. There's nothing here in the context that says it's a particular sin. It's any sin that the Lord decides is needing the response of death. That, that there, is, there needs immediate discipline. Whatever one God decides for that. And so th- this is not a type of sin. This isn't a genre of, of sins. God just decides that it is in the best interest of this Christian to go to heaven than to ruin their testimony or to lead other Christians into evil things. Whatever the immediate, immediate situation that that is, that is this sin that is leading to death. i got to get them out of there. It's causing too many problems. I need to have them removed. Now, it's possible that you're thinking, I have never heard this before. But this is not unheard of. It's not unheard of in the New Testament. You have Ananias and Sapphira. They lied in front of the Holy Spirit in the church, and boom, they dropped dead. Divine discipline right there on the spot. Now, the thing that they did didn't seem very bad. But in God's eyes, for whatever reason that God decided that that was egregious and he needed to get them out of there immediately. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 gives us another example of this. In 1 Corinthians, it's a, it, the scene is a church. I mean, it's a church like ours. It's like Grace Community Church Corinth instead of Grace Community Church Riverside. And they're having their communion service. And in the New Testament, the communion services included a meal like ours does. And so it had a meal. And so the church in Corinth had turned that symbolic communion meal into a gluttonous party. And they disrespected the commands of God regarding the communion service that 1 Corinthians described that some of those Christians in that church were physically weakened because of discipline from God, a punishment from God. Some of the Christians in that church got severely ill. And it wasn't, it wasn't that you know, there was shrimp and it sat out too long and it had grown something. It wasn't that. It was a divine, immediate response to an antinomiast idea. They were, just, they were antinomians in the church. And they just figured, we know it's God's command, but who really cares? I mean, Jesus died for it. Let's party. Let's, I mean, let's glutton ourselves out of this. This is awesome. And so they just didn't see the need to follow God's morality in that area. Not only were some people weakened, not only were some Christians fell ill, some Christians died. This is an example of antinomians who just didn't care about the commands of God being taken to heaven sooner than originally would have occurred, but God decided that it was best for them to leave now as a result of this sin. Now, it's possible this is what you're thinking. Eh, I, let me not project. This is what I think. Okay, That all I have to do is look around for another person who is sinning worse than me. And as long as they are still alive... I'm good, you know. If God's going to get them, they're going to get them first. If God's going to get them first, 
And, and that'll be like my warning, you know, it's the, the, it'll be the canary in the mine. When that canary goes, uh, you know, when my friend goes, okay, then, then I know I'm next on the list. But that's not how this works because it's not a particular genre of sin. It's not a, a particular severity of sin. The Lord decides. And we, there's not more, more comment on what the sin is than that. God is the one that decides what sin and if that was a serious enough sin. And the Lord will immediately take them to heaven. And notice the recommendation from John. It says, I do not say that he should make a request for this. You know, like, think about this. Any Christian that you see, I know you don't sin at all. The other Christians, okay. So when you see another Christian sinning, every Christian is either sinning to the point of death or they're sinning to the point of not dying. Okay? So every Christian sinning is wrapped up in this verse. It's not like there's three segments of, you know, and then there's like a lesser sin that God doesn't really include here. No, no. Every Christian is either sinning to the point of not dying, <laughs> that's the one we hope for, and sinning to the point of dying, right? Okay, so think of that. Every single Christian is in one of those two situations, but you don't know it. You don't know which one that is. And so as you pray, that's what it says here, as you ask, as you pray to God, that, that prayer will be a benefit to those Christians that are sinning to the point of not dying because God then will send, them, send some you know, rescue ships out to them to try to bring them back from the edge. And those rescue ships are a response to the prayer of, please help this sin to stop. God says, okay, well, you might be a part of the rescue then, all right? You get to go talk with them. But then there are other people that you don't know that actually are sinning to the point of death. They're going to end up on their deathbed because of this. And the point here that John is simply making is that if it's God's will to put them on their deathbed, no intercessory prayer is going to change God's will in that area. It's going to happen. <laughs> that even though that this is a, a righteous person that's praying, they have no, no separation between them and God, they are praying for God's will, but they really want that person to be rescued. If it is God's will that they are going to end up on their deathbed or dead because of this, no prayer is going to help that because it's already God's will. Now, this is a very unique situation. It does happen in the New... We see it in the New Testament. Um, it doesn't happen often that I know of. And there's only one solution. Now, if you understand sin and the way that God operates with sin in a Christian, you might already know what that solution is. But I want to show you the way that James describes how the solution would occur when someone's on their deathbed as a result of sin. Turn your Bibles to James, to your left. So it's probably like four pages to your left in James. James chapter 5 is the only solution to this situation. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. I'm just going to read the entire passage. I have sermons on our website if you want to listen to a more in-depth um, study of this passage. Um, but this is the solution. Verse 14 of James 5. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith 
will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And here's an interesting caveat. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Gives an example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. My brethren, if anyone, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this gives us a little bit more insight into what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 5. You have someone who is sick, deathly sick on their deathbed. And if they are on their deathbed as an immediate judgment of God because of sin, they're going to know it. God does discipline his children. That's a good thing. If you get disciplined by God and you know why you're being disciplined by God, it, that's a good thing. That means you're a child of God. God doesn't discipline other people's children. He disciplines his own. And just like a natural parent wants their children to know why they're being disciplined because that parent wants that, that behavior to stop, and so they discipline their child for that thing. So, so the child knows why they're being disciplined. Same is true with God the Father, that if God is disciplining you for a sin, you know it. And so if something is happening to you and you don't think that there's any unconfessed sin in your life, you don't think that there's anything that is hindering your relationship with the Lord and something bad is happening to you, it's not God punishing you. It's something else. It's not God punishing you. But James is describing a situation where someone is on their deathbed and they know. They know that God is judging them because of something that they've done. And so they call the elders of the church over. And the elders of the church then there are almost representing God in a way. And that person on the deathbed confesses the sin that they are being judged for. And that's, that's what God is looking for. He's looking for reconciliation. He's looking for repentance. And so as that person confesses that sin to the elders and really ultimately confessing their sin to God, and those elders pray over that person who is deathly ill on their deathbed. That's where we get to the verse of the, the faithful prayer of a righteous man produces much, or depending on your translation, availeth much. Well, that is simply the elders who are praying over this person, praying that they would be brought back from the edge of death because of the confession of sin. And God will... Like the promise in verse 14 and 15, he will answer that prayer. And those elders who, have, um, who are believers, who have been confessing their sin all along, so there's immediate direct fellowship with the Lord, and they pray a prayer that is God's will. It is God's will that a Christian who is far from him be reconciled to him through repentance, that then as that confession occurs... And those elders pray that that person would be saved. The elder's prayer is answered, and immediately they are healed from that sin if that is the reason that they were on their deathbed. Now, if the person dies after all of that, <laughs> that's not why they were there. It, there was some natural reason that they were there. Now, what we're not talking about someone being on their deathbed because of natural reasons, because of cancer or because of... 
driving motorcycle 130 miles an hour on the freeway and ending up on the deathbed. We're talking about a person who is on their deathbed because they know that this is a, a punishment, a judgment from God. And, and, and if you think about this, even this is merciful because God is just wanting them to, to return to him. He's just wanting that there to be a reconciliation. God is just wanting them to not sin. And so even them being on their deathbed is better than the alternative, which is death. <laughs> and so this is the only solution to the situation of this man or this person who has committed a sin that is leading to death. Now, it's possible as you're hearing all this, maybe for the first time, that you're thinking about people that you know that might be in this category, that, that might be people that have died because of this or are currently in this situation right now, but that's not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is that the reader, both the first century Christians and you and I, would never let it get to this point. That's, that's the goal here. The, the purpose of this passage is not to... Um, it's not to determine what the sin leading to death is. We don't know. The, the goal here is not to point fingers at people who we think died because of this situation. The message here is contrary to the antinomians who say that sin is no big deal, this passage is saying sin is deadly. For a believer, sin is deadly. And a Christian should at all costs and at all stakes, live as if they are born again, living in this new kingdom, this new culture of God, as they have been adopted out, rescued out of the, the world's culture that they came from before they were saved. Now, the reality is, if we understand sin right, and if we understand God's word right, the reality is, is that every single time we sin, we deserve death, Right? The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. It's inescapable. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so every sin is a serious matter. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was dying for, for your sins. If you think that you've sinned so bad or so much that God could never save you, that is not true biblically. Now, you can think that if you want, but that's not true biblically. Jesus took all of the judgment upon him from the righteous judge, God the Father, and so that if you put your faith and trust in him, that his, his assuming of the punishment of God applies in your life. That's how a Christian's sins can be forgiven. That's how they can be washed clean from that sin is because of Jesus' death. And of course, that is God's mercy. We all deserve death because of our sin. But it's God's mercy. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. And so in reality, even a person who, who commits the sin leading to death and God does take them to heaven, that is merciful. I mean, think about that for a minute. That it is better for them to be in heaven than it is to be ruining their testimony and, and leading other people, into other Christians into evil things it's better than they would be in heaven. That is God's will for them. And it's better to be in God's will, even if you don't like it, than it is to be outside of God's will and you do like it. And so this is the sin that is leading to death. And so John says, that's in God's hands. <laughs> no intercessory prayer 
is going to pull someone out of that death if that's already God's will. And then he winds down with things that we've already heard before from this book, verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Of course, we know what that's referring to. It's not that they don't ever sin, period, that someone instantly becomes perfection, but they are now living in God's culture, and they are not habitually, regularly sinning anymore. They might trip and fall into sin every once in a while, but their life isn't a habit of sin anymore. But God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. That person does not end up in hell. Satan has no authority over that person anymore. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, despite the thousands and thousands of different languages and and cultures and um, countries around the world that have ever existed, there really are only two cultures. There are really only two. There's God's culture and there's the world's culture. And the point of 1 John is, what culture are you in? You can pretty easily identify what culture you are in. And you can pretty easily identify the culture that other people are in as well. That was the purpose of this book. Now, after hearing all of this, you may be a Christian, but you might be a little scared. And and that is a healthy fear that this exists. Because the goal of the Lord is just that you would reconcile to Him, that you would repent, that you would stop doing it. God is an antinomian. God has his morality. He has his commands. It's pretty clear in Scripture. I'm not talking about weird gray areas where everybody fights. We're not talking about that. We're talking about clear morality, clear commands of God. And if you realize that you have been sinning as a believer, hopefully this is fear-inducing. And the goal would be is that you would confess your sin to God. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's the application if you're a believer today. Now, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is the same loving God that will, will forgive sins throughout an entire person's life as the person, as the, the one who will, uh, who's already died for your sins. And so if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you can put your faith and trust in him today. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. He came to earth born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He never sinned one time. So when he dies on the cross, Jesus dies on the cross, not for his sin. He has none. He's perfect. He dies on the cross for your sins. Any person that would put their belief, their trust, their faith in this Jesus, their sins are removed. Life occurs. Eternal life in heaven as opposed to eternal death in hell. When a person puts their belief, their trust in this Jesus. Now, when a Christian sins, I'll give the antinomians this, that it is true, when a Christian sins, they don't lose their salvation. But God commands that his children would be obedient to their father. We don't don't stop sinning in order to get ourselves to heaven. Our goal is to live a, a, a godly life because we're going to heaven. And so if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, today could be the day that you could do that. Or Jesus is then his death applies in your life, your sins are forgiven, and you can have the hope of eternity in heaven as opposed to eternity in hell. 
That's the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to give you the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus today. I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? All of you, whether you know you're going to heaven or not, it just gives uh, the person next to you a chance to think about these things. So if you'd bow your heads, close your eyes, create a little separation just even visually between you and the person next to you. And even if you already know that you're going to heaven, you don't know the heart of the person sitting next to you like God does. So allow them to consider these things. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, all it is is putting your belief in him, having faith in what you've heard about Jesus. If you're not sure what to say to him, you just talk to him in prayer. You don't even have to say anything out loud. God knows what's on your mind. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to walk forward or anything like that. God knows what's on your mind. He can read your heart. And this is what you can say in the quietness of your own heart. You can say this. You can say, God, I know that I've sinned. And I realize that I need a savior. I realize that I need a rescuer. And, and I believe what, what the Bible says about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he has died on the cross for our, my sin. I believe that he rose from the grave three days later, proving that he is God and, and that he can do everything the Bible says that he could do. I put my faith in Jesus. I, I, I put my, my belief in the Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I put my eternity in the hands of this Jesus. Their heads still bowed and your eyes still closed. The immediate promise is that God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity comes and lives inside of you. If you know that you're a Christian, if you know that you're going to heaven, you have that Holy Spirit living inside of you. And if you feel guilty for sins today, that's because the Holy Spirit is prompting your guilt. And today's a day where you confess that sin to God. Be a clean slate before you leave here today. Be reconciled to God today. Turn back around and go the other way. Repent today. And this is what you could say. Maybe you're not accustomed to this, but you can, you'd confess your sins like this. You'd say, God, I know that I've sinned. I, I, I've done this, and I've done this. And just name them to, to the Lord. He knows what they are. <laughs> you know he knows. Just name them. And you can say, those are wrong. Those are sin. I should, I should never be doing that. It hurts me. It hurts you. I don't want to ever do that again. Please, please, God, help me. Help me not to do those things ever again. I want to live a life for you. I want to live a godly life. And God, we praise you as a church. We thank you for keeping even this promise, of promising to wash our feet clean of our sin, of forgiving our sin, maintaining our fellowship with God the Father. We, we praise for you for all of these promises that your word has made. And God, I pray that our church is, um, is encouraged because of these things. We thank you for showing us these things. Um, and we pray that, um, that it would change who we are and how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.